Welcome to Contracast. My name's Kat Boyd. I'm joined as ever with my co-host David Jameson. How's it going? I'd say how's it going, except uh, about an hour ago there was yet another uh, sort of loyalist rampage in, in George Square. Have you seen this? I've not. I've not seen it. Like uh, it only just happened an hour ago, and I was on one of my little Twitter break walks. So fill uh-huh. me in. So it was. Uh, the anti-evictions campaign held a demonstration mm-hmm. and it's related to, you know, Mia's group, uh, sort of hotel detention uh, and, and those kind of issues, which is, is, is a fascinating issue at the moment because hotels have been commandeered by states for all kinds of purposes, including, of course, holding asylum seekers and uh, holding homeless people um, and all kinds of other issues. I believe that the protest was actually over the quality of food and, and other issues in the in the meals group uh, holding. Uh, and the protest was organised by refugees. The same people who protest who were protesting against who are the the statue defenders uh, a few days ago also turned up to defend the cenotaph from this demonstration and then quickly attacked the demonstration. So they've gone from defending uh, some statues to defending this heinous, massive anti-working class corporation and the, you know, pretty basic demands of some asylum seekers. Uh, It's a pretty manky scene in in George Square at the moment. And it just underlines, I think, like, of the obvious motivations of these people, but also that this problem of far-right loyalism in Scotland has obviously been allowed to fester and and sort of break out in this kind of latest manifestation, tolerated for a very long time. In many ways, I think that that subculture is actually worse than when I moved to Glasgow about 12 or 13 years ago. Um, I think in many ways it's sort of moved into the vacuum of far-right politics. Always has been, of course, in Scotland, the mainstay of far-right politics. But as other movements have developed across Europe, it's very much the local franchise uh, of that uh, situation. So I suspect there's going to have to be a serious conversation about what to do about it now. But there are like many contributors to the situation in, in George Square today, including Police Scotland, who I understand are telling journalists not to report uh, on the riot, and including Glasgow City Council, who uh, have historically and still today, you know, I understand that, you know, pressure was applied by Call It Out um, in, in recent years. Yes. Uh, and they've won victories. But of course, historically, Glasgow City Council have always allowed these marches to terrorise the Catholic and um, Irish communities in, in Glasgow. Well, this so, is the this is the big can of worms, right? That it opens in terms of a wider political discussion about racism in Scotland. Um, I suppose it's kind of uncomfortable. I don't particularly want to be the person bringing this up, but like Scotland has a problem with racism, and a big part of that is anti-Irish racism, mm-hmm. and like that is the I think that that is one of the major taboos in Scottish society, I think it begins to, like, the reason I'm calling it a can of worms is because the modern liberal discourse about race um, around things like white privilege, do you know what I mean? It really starts to bump up against that. But when the Irish came to Scotland, they were racialized. They were racialized Mm. as a people. Um, You know, people know of the no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. Um, the same way that when Irish immigrants went to America, they were racialized. And um, there's a really good book called How the Irish Became White, um, which details the the way that the Irish um, lost their lost their green, like lost their Celtic identity to become white in the United States of America and to join in a cross-class alliance to continue um, like racial exploitation against African-Americans. Um, so I'm, what I'm not doing here is making a moral argument about like the being from an Irish Catholic background. Um, I'm not making like a moral argument about like how great the Irish are. But what I'm saying is that Scotland has always had this problem with Irishness. It's, it's yeah. 
And I think that the fact that our brand of the far right is linked in to that completely. You can't deny that that's linked in with like a hatred of um, Irishness, of Catholics, as well as, you know, anyone that isn't like part of the people. And I just want to take this opportunity to shout out a solidarity message to Matt Crilly. Have you seen what's happened to Matt Crilly? No, I've not seen this. So Matt Crilly is the president of Strathclyde University Students Union. Uh He made the link on Twitter between loyalism and um, Rangers Football Club, which, do you know what I mean? Find me someone on the street that's going to disagree with that. And now an investigation has been launched into Matt Crilly by the university for his comments. And like, I stand like firmly with Matt on this. Like, I think that's a really brave thing to do to actually publicly make that link. Because see, when you do start to say these things in Scotland, like nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to talk about this. Um, you know, the treatment of people like, I mean, Angela Haggerty, like, and I don't agree with Angela, like on every political issue, but the way that she was treated for daring to, to speak out against these things was horrific. Now, um, I did have to laugh about the um, news that because of coronavirus, the orange walks are going to be done by <laughs> virtual reality. I saw this. I saw this um, yeah. on a treadmill. It reminded me of, do you remember, it became very irritating, but about like 20 years ago or something, must be that, or 15 years ago or something, Peter Kay had that version out of that song for comic relief, yeah. Uh, Amarillo. Yeah, yeah. And, and it featured loads of celebrities, <laughs> including including some who you couldn't put on a TV screen these days. Um, I put them on like a treadmill, you know, and it was like one of those old style mm-hmm. videos. That's in my mind what's happening in that Orange mm-hmm. March. There's a really good cartoon of like um, an orange man in his sash on a treadmill and the caption is, uh, Alexa, play the sash again. Oh, yes. Sorry, I didn't know that. That was my Alexa. Uh, <laughs> that's great. I also love, sorry, I don't know that. You know what I mean? That there could sorry, be a... I don't know that. What, the only thing yeah. that that cartoon is missing is like a cardboard cutout of a priest that they can spit at on their way past. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing I think that's fascinating about this from like a sociological point of view is that I think it's something that it's, it's weird that there's often not much of a theoretical attempt to understand like how the far right operates. They typically seize on our racism, right, which, is, which has a popular base in society. So they don't, they're not innovators. Like the Nazis didn't invent anti-Semitism. They simply observed that it was a popular form of bigotry in society. And they could use anti-Semitism to popularise some of their less popular ideas. That's how Mm. the far right Mm. use racism. So Mm. because Scottish civil society won't discuss the problem of anti-Irish racism and anti-Catholic bigotry, that provides the far right with a platform to then spread their other messages. So this is not unconnected to the fact that they just attacked the demonstration by asylum seekers. They also hate asylum seekers, right? Yeah. They hate all kinds of people. But a lot of those hatreds are less palatable, especially to people with established power in Scotland, than bigotry towards Catholics and the Irish. So they will establish themselves first with the acceptable racism, and then they'll move out into the wider programme. Exactly the same thing has happened in recent British history with Islamophobia. So people like the BNP stopped talking about anti-Semitism for a time because it became unpalatable. They didn't become any less, any less anti-Semitic, but they stopped talking about that because it was less palatable. And they started using the racism that was provided to them by the government, by the media, by you know powerful civic institutions. And there was a, a number of years where uh, Islamophobia, still today really, uh, was never officially accepted as a real form of uh, racism. And that has allowed for any number of other bigotries to to spawn uh, out of that uh, situation. And I think it is a problem, like sometimes the way racism is discussed. It's often forgotten that in Europe, 
and there are lots of different forms of racism in Europe because it's the home of colonialism, so naturally it is. But it's often the case that racially oppressed groups in Europe uh, are white. I mean, the, the examples are some of the most obvious ones, like Irish Catholics, Jews, travellers, right, are among historically, you know, uh, the most persecuted people uh, in European society. But there are actually many more. I mean, there are enough racial antagonisms in Europe to fulfil the remit of any far-right movement. People forget that some form of discrimination or bigotry was necessary in the state formation of just about every uh, European state. Like, we get the word culture war from the official anti-Catholic programmes of the German state, uh, like, in its stages of formation. So yeah, I think, I, I mean, it's one of kind of many, many blind spots. I think it's, it's not served the Scottish left particularly well that in recent decades, it failed to establish itself on this issue, in particular in Scotland, uh, of anti-Irish, uh, anti-Catholic uh, politics. I mean, there were always principled examples of people who did, but many people on, on the Scottish left have historically uh, ignored it uh, as an issue because of the difficulty it will bring you, as you say, if you sort of roll up your, your sleeves and dive into it. I think today's probably a, a good example of why you can't, can't ignore it, you can't leave it out, because it will metastasize and start attacking other things as well. So I, I mean, this is kind of an, out, an outgrowth of the, the statues thing, which I kind of want to um, discuss. We were discussing that uh, earlier today. How do you feel about the, about the statues debate in general? So my view on the statues um, debate is that, you know, I, I think it's a good thing if we take the statues that commemorate slave owners and we put them in a museum that explains the, the role of the slave trade in building Glasgow. Um, I think that that's certainly a noble aim and something that I could get behind. However, what, what I'm not in favour of is that being the sole terrain on which we fight this argument or the sole terrain for anti-racist politics. Like, I, I think that, look, first of all, I think that it's important to say that you can completely support the removal of these statues of reactionary figures, but also have a, a kind of... a degree of criticism for that being the ultimate focus of it, right? Secondly, there is a there is a difference here from the statues that we have that have been erected in Britain or in England or in Scotland compared to statues of Confederacy memorials or Confederacy figures in the US as well. Like I think that these are two different things. Um, I think that part of our movement around the statues is because of the like Americanization of our political culture. Mm -hmm. Like I do, I, I do think that like, which again, I feel like I keep having to caveat everything that I'm saying with, but I still, I still support the removal of these statues because, you know, I, I think that everyone's gone mental on the canceling. <laughs> so I just want to be like dead clear that like, I do actually support this, but I'm not going to, like just switch off my, my critical faculties. So for example, like in the US, the US military are who's all their like barracks, like the forts are named after like generals and um Confederate generals and things like that. US military don't really give a shit. I mean, they're actually fine <laughs> with having their um, barracks and stations renamed with more, you know, progressive names or bland names or um, can you have something that's historically neutral? Probably not, but, <laughs> um, but they're absolutely fine to do that. Um, and, there, you know, there's plenty of, of other examples of where organisations or institutions that normally represent the state or capitalist interests are completely fine with the removal of statues. And that is because it, it doesn't actually change the power structures. 
you know what I mean? It, it, it rearranges the, the chairs, if you like. I mean, it rearranges the bits, but it doesn't fundamentally transform any of the structures of power, any of the struct structures of oppression. And I think that we have to be really aware that that's the case here. All we're doing is looking towards that past without any like attempt to like build for the future. If we're really going to fight about these statues and that's it, then that's not something I can get on board with. Um, but if it's part of something that's much bigger and broader, um, that's actually like, going to build some sort of like organisational foothold, like I think that, that would be great. Um, in terms of the stuff in America, like I do think it's different when there's like monuments to the Confederates and Confederacy generals, but Adolf Reed, who's like, I think that the interventions that he's making just now um, on this are well worth reading if anyone hasn't had the chance yet. He also did an interview recently with Jacobin, um, which is all about like against class reductionism and the anti-racist discourse, but like actually putting class within that discourse as well. He talks about, well, you have to look at the point in US history when those statues were actually erected and what they were erected for. They were not really erected to celebrate or memorialize the Confederacy. They were erected at a period of time when the ruling white elites within the Southern states were looking to consolidate their own power. Like, so it, I think that he's right, that we have to understand that that's what those monuments were for. Yes, but by all means, like, let's take them away. I mean, all, all these old like bits of public art, I mean, most of them are quite ugly anyway, right? So let's, let's move on. Let's, you know, put them in a place where people can go and learn about the history and why the why they were removed but we also have to be really clear that this was a project built around consolidation of class power not white supremacy necessarily but about like consolidating the ruling class power i mean obviously like the ruling class being like white but i think it's really important to make those distinctions and to have those nuances around this discussion yeah yeah, I mean, that's by now I, it's a kind of famous analysis that the the Confederate statues uh, weren't, they don't date obviously to the time of the Confederacy. In fact, quite a lot of them, well, date of course to the kind of late antebellum period, but they go much closer in history than that. A lot of them are actually a response by local governments to the civil rights movement. So they're very obviously. Uh, an attempt to construct a confederate, like a southern identity, around which you can mould various social classes into a, an a meaningful alliance uh, that can form the class basis for modern southern uh, society. To limit yourself to saying, well, that's about, those are statues of white supremacy and it represents the development of, of white supremacy or the, the permanence of white supremacy, is almost to take the mythology of the Southern ideology at its word. That there is a, a white power that includes all white people who legitimately have a stake in it and whose interests are actually served by um, that, that phony ideology. Um, interestingly, as far as I remember, I don't mean back to the Civil War, um, the Confederate battle flag. So one, one of these, the older version of this debate was removing the Confederate battle flag from all the southern states' flags. That wasn't the Confederate flag. It was also a creation of the of the antebellum period. It was all, also an attempt to create a sort of national consciousness for something that was never a nation. It never mm. had a unified flag. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like the the, I mean, the, the Confederacy itself was a, a, a ramshackle, abortive project. It was never. I mean probably wrong to say it was never going to succeed you can't really read history in that way but it wasn't like a, a real national project uh, it was uh it was a deranged development that came from the fact that america had this weird two-staged bourgeois revolution it, it yeah. never had the complete process on the first um, round as, as revolutions like that often worked out I what mean, I'm, sorry i was just going to say like it's also this is 
this is not the first time that this debate has happened about the statues and it's ha- it was in 2017 I think that there was like a big push in certain states to have statues removed as well and yeah. Adolf Reed wrote this like amazing article round about that time which is called Monumental Rubbish um, and I was going to read a quote from it if, if that is permissible go on go on and so he says <clears throat> As obnoxious as the monuments are, removing them is ultimately a rearguard undertaking and one entirely compatible with the dominant neoliberal ideal of social and racial justice as a celebration of rich multicultural heritage and equal opportunity to benefit from the logic of accumulation by dispossession. And for reasons that have less to do with an abstraction like white supremacy than with the dynamics of a political and economic regime that concentrates benefits at the top of at the expense of everyone else black new orleanians are disproportionately but by no means entirely or exclusively likely to occupy the ranks of the dispossessed under that regime some anti-racist activists believe that a struggle struggle over symbolic residues of an obnoxious past can fuel or condense challenges to inequalities in the present but that view is plausible only if one assumes that white supremacy is the source of injustice in the past and present and the efforts compatibility with neoliberal priorities underscores that it's just not possible to get there from here. Yeah, I think that's yeah. magnificent. Like, I think that's a like searingly insightful piece of writing. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested as well in the, um, the British application of this because moderns kind of statue building, that kind of ideology building, myth building projects like the one we discussed in America, they're common across capitalist states. So um, some of the coolest, like the coolest one I ever came across is in uh, 2016. I don't, I can't, did you I, uh, go to Ireland for the, for the commemorations? I did. Oh. Right. That, that was one of the most like bizarre and kind of cool ones because it's, it was strange to see a European state which has like a modern anti-colonial struggle mm. and celebrating a modern anti-colonial revolution as the founding of the state is a really it's, it's a really kind of bizarre sight so they were kind of like you know in profile the martyrs were everywhere all over um, Dublin all over Cork anywhere I went in Ireland it was everywhere the proclamation was everywhere the martyrs were everywhere um, like it was a really rainy Iran or something. Um, but in Britain as well. Rainy Iran. Ra- rainy, <laughs> miserable, drizzly Iran. Um, but um, uh, in Britain, of course, we have this as well. So inevitably, every single time the debate comes up about statues in Britain, always turns into a debate about fucking Winston Churchill, right? The thing that I find fascinating about the debate about Winston Churchill is so you, it always ends up with two sides, right? One that says, look, just because he was a great war leader and he saved us in the Second World War doesn't mean that his racism is tolerable, right? And then you have another side of the debate that says, yes, his racism was awful, usually with the caveat that it was of its time and so on. He was a man of his time. However, how can you say, say that blots out our memory of him as a great war leader who saved the country from the Nazis? Both sides of that debate typically agree that Winston Churchill was a great man who saved us, a great war leader who saved us from the Nazis, etc., etc. Um, it's not true. Winston Churchill had a bad war. He was not in and around a good war leader in the Second World War. Britain was one of the big losers from the Second World War. It lost what the, the world's largest empire, the world's largest land and sea empire, largely as a consequence of the Second World, uh, Second World War. Indeed, it lost a lot of that empire during the war itself, and in the 20 years afterwards, it just completely uh, disintegrated. Britain couldn't enter the, the Continental War. Britain was stuck on its own island, despite the fact that it had this empire to draw on. These, I mean, these tell you what a bad war um, Britain had. And, you know, of course, as people often say, eight in 10 or whatever German soldiers died on the Eastern Front. These are all telling realities. Britain uh, had a bad war and the bits that we remember as 
you know, our finest hour and so on. So, for example, the RAF's defence of Britain, again, it's telling that it's a defence, it's, it's, it's an attempt to uh, stop an invasion. And had the RAF not stopped the Germans in the north of France, um, I mean, had there actually been a land-based invasion, you know, Operation Sea Lion was the planned invasion of Britain, Britain would have been defeated. There's, there's, there's relatively little doubt uh, about that, that in the immediate time, the Nazis would have uh, would have won power in on the British Isles. The the cult of Winston Churchill is about forgetting that history. Churchill had one had one kind of benefit, which was that he wasn't an appeaser. He was a rare figure in the Conservative Party who didn't want to appease Hitler. The bulk of opinion in the Conservative Party consistently appeased him. And Winston Churchill consistently said, this is a stupid idea. He did so because he wanted to defend the British Empire. But that's the thing that he's remembered for and for making powerful speeches and so on. Um, but that doesn't outweigh the, the general calamity of Britain's experience in the run-up to the Second World War, throughout the war, and in the decades afterwards. Um, the the colour of Winston Churchill is about uh, encouraging British people to forget that in the 20 years afterwards, Britain had this spectacular fall from grace, that by the end of the Second World War, we were massively in debt to the United States, which had definitively leapfrogged Britain as the real power in the world, that in the 1950s, famously, the United States blocked what remained of Britain's imperial ambitions, and by the 60s and 70s, we had, you know, Britain, British troops were fighting to hold on to a few last toeholds uh, in, in the world system. And of course, we've been supporting the United States ever since. That's what the cult of Churchill is about. It's about forgetting that. And to a lesser extent, it's about forgetting um, the political radical, radical, radicalization in Britain at the end of the Second World War, the National yes. Health Service, the welfare yes. state, so on. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that Winston Churchill was swept from power instantly upon the end of the Second World War. Like, that is not a common piece of historical knowledge in British mm. society. Despite the fact that a lot, even a lot of people who will know about the 45 Labour government and Claire yeah. Attlee won't join the dots that that meant that the great war leader was, you know, unceremoniously booted out of power. <laughs> and he was booted, right? So there's great footage, I was watching it the other day, of Churchill being roundly booed by returning British troops. Not on common scenes at mm. all. He was a hate figure in large parts of the British Armed Forces, the British Navy, the British Air Force by the end of the Second World War. Again, that doesn't, it's not a picture you'd ever get of Winston Churchill from official British historiography. So there's, an ex there's a very similar process. It's a different process, but it's the same thing in the sense that this is an obfuscation of history with a specific project in mind. Churchill became an image of British patriotism. In fact, he is probably the image of British national identity yeah. once the empire could no longer be that. Yeah, I mean, that's my understanding of the, like the aesthetic of Churchill and British patriotism after the Second World War is that the ruling elites needed something that was able to, to create a sense of British nationalism that people could be proud of and that that would be in the interests of capital around in order to not feel the humiliation of the loss of empire. Yeah and, and if you think about it the British state broadly I mean it, 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 it traveled those 20 or 30 years with that catastrophic loss relatively well. You know Britain's mm. actually good at managing its own decline. Um, there were so many. I mean, again, none of this is as part of the national memory. How many um, times have you heard the vote, the horrific British struggle over Aden, the port of Aden, yeah. uh, which was horrific. I mean, uh, it was like a full-blown war. The British state was viciously torturing people in a part of the world. Obviously, most you know a lot of British people couldn't point at on a map. Not at all part of our modern historical record. Zimbabwe. The only thing mm. someone from my generation would know about Zimbabwe was that a really, really bad man called Robert Mugabe has been in charge of the country forever and ruined it, and it's the worst country in Africa as a consequence. Like, 
Robert Mugabe, whatever his you know horrors and and so forth, the reason he's a hate figure on the BBC is because he beat the British state. Yeah, that's that's yeah. why he's a hate figure on the BBC. Yeah. Isn't like that. Robert Mugabe, when he was still around, he wasn't all over the TV in like Italy and Japan and France and Korea. Like he wasn't an internationally known figure. He's known in Britain because he beat us. And that and that's why I mean, this seems like a million years ago, um, but in twenty fourteen there was all those comparisons between Robert Mugabe and Alex Salmond. Do you remember that? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you forget that Mugabe was a was a. Uh, he was a bogeyman. A, a bogeyman, a famous kind of insult. Yeah. I always I always remember that that one about in the thick of it, Malcolm Tucker is described as a thin white Mugabe. <laughs> <laughs> but, there's, but there's loads of those. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't pretend to know the the the, the history. There's a really good um, series about this. I think it's called. If you type it in on YouTube, you will find there's a very good series specifically about the decline of the British Empire, and all of the different places in which there was a furious st- struggle by the British to maintain, mm-hmm. you know, white minority rule. And all of the horrors of colonialism, even as history was was clearly kind of ruling it out in most parts of the world. Um, but yeah, a, a whole episode of history very effectively removed from uh, from public consciousness. And I know that this is like a, a bit of a cliche, you know, like during the Brexit debate, a lot of people were like, "Who's going to tell the boomers that they didn't fight World War Two? But it is that is true. Like there has been this like. Um, this sense of an ever a never-ending World War II that lasted into the 1950s and the 1960s, and that a whole generation of people inexplicably feel that they were part of it in some way. Now, there probably are some... I think that that's a... I would interject there to say that that's a very English phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Not a British is. phenomenon, but, like, the way that, um, like, English identity on both left and right has that... I mean, the right less so now, I think. I think there's a lot more English patriotism. But the left as well, all of their kind of like national identity centres on this idea of Britishness. Like, I mean, the, the English left, I think, are terrified of talking about being English, lest they be associated with those guys that were protesting in London at the weekend. Do you know what I mean? Like Chanting, you're not English anymore at the police. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? Like the, the English left, I think, would rather be British, even if it means invading other countries for their oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that that's yeah. There's there's a there's a hierarchy of racists uh, in this situation. You know, where uh, association with a British liberal racist like like Tony Blair is not considered as bad as association. With and this is else. like one of the things about Scotland that I mean. I'd probably get loads of flack for this, but, you know, there's a cue. But, like, when we go back to our discussion about loyalism, like, a lot of the reactionary politics, like, which is part of the the ruling class, do you know what I mean? Like, even though these people are just, like, normal working class people who have absorbed these ideas, like, the actual ruling class of Scotland orientates on a Britishness, rather than a, than a sense of like Scottishness. Like the MSPs in the Scottish Parliament, right? I'm not saying that they're without power um, and that they are not like part of our capitalist class. Like I'm not saying that at all, but what I'm saying is like the real like reactionary embedded parts of Scotland, like the Duke of Buccleuch and do you know I mean? The, the landowning estates and all that, that orientates on a sense of British identity. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I suppose both. I mean, I, I think we, we, we sometimes forget in Scotland that our sense of what Scottishness is, is largely a product a British of... construct. <laughs> it's largely a British construct. So um, a, a Scottish nationalism in particular, official mm. Scottish nationalism, the SNP's version of Scottish nationalism, uh, is a very, very unionist version mm. of nationalism. So I think it was, I, I'm not an expert on this, this whole debate, but it is a very interesting one. In the um, uh, uh, in the nineteenth century, there was of course the Victorians were very good at like constructing uh, tradition 
that hadn't existed really before. Uh, so, for example, they turned the Jacobites uh, and some figures from the War of Independence into images of modern Scottishness. They did that in a sense because they were worried that if Scots were left without a distinctive national identity, that would lead them to rile against union. You need to have a distinctive identity in order to, I mean, that is generally true of ideology, right? Like that has to, something that has to be born in mind in the 21st century. The purpose of identity uh, is very often to control people within a wider scheme, right? That, that's, that, it's a very important kind of item of ideology in that sense. So the whole point of giving Scots an identity as being like noble savages, uh, windswept warriors, um, you know, proud, all this kind of stuff. I'm thinking was, of that TV program. What is it called again? Outlander. Outlander, yeah. Your favourite. Yeah, Outlander. Um, I think you and I were in a... Uh, well, we, we saw we saw the, the world epicentre of the project of Unionist Scottish national identity when we it were was, in... What's um, it was Glenfinnan. Glenfinnan, right? Of course, it was like <laughs> the classic site of it. Yeah, yeah. And we went to the... We went to Tear the down Glenfinnan! <laughs> Glenn, Glenn Finnan is yeah, it's anti-Scottish unionism. Uh, um, but if you if you go into the tat shop that's near the statue, uh, you'll find that it's all like Harry Potter guff. Uh, yeah. Uh, because out, it's on that uh, that train that goes up to Malig. It's yeah. also yeah near that statue, just right by actually, um, and uh, yeah, and so it was all Harry Potter guff and Outlander guff. Um, who are very kind of like all, all the characters in Outlander are obviously they're, they're uh, Jacobites and they're very much in that kind of unionist portrayal of Jacobites is you know noble rustics who are if anything better for not being able to read you know what I mean it's, it's a very popular idea like the less cultured you are the uh, the uh, the more noble you are but uh, we also speculated that you know, people wouldn't find Outlander quite so romantic if they had to. People think it. that they're uh, the Outlander people are quite sexy. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but I don't it, think they would have in real life. They would have been stinking. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there was no soap in them days, right? I, I mean, it, all those characters would have been toothless. <laughs> you know what I mean? Imagine if the heartthrob in Outlander had about two teeth in his head. Right, he was absolutely stinking, and he certainly wouldn't have any truck with any kind of like modern concepts of reality. You know, he would, you know, just going around murdering people and and and, and all sorts, right? Stinking, uh, stinking. <laughs> <laughs> Above all else, absolutely stinking. If that had been more realistic, the character who comes from the future, like the woman who comes from the future back to the, the Jacobite times, would have just spent the whole thing just on that. You are absolutely stinking. <laughs> less less scope for romance, I think, yeah. in, in that more accurate version of uh, of Outland. Yeah, so so the general unionist project has been to downplay downplay the general smelliness of Scottish history. Uh, <laughs> and that that has been <laughs> that has been adopted by modern Scottish nationalists, uh, who have no idea really just how stinking. Uh, the Jacobites uh, uh, really well, but you know what I mean. Like, and, and beyond the stench, um, yeah, it's obviously like uh, so. It's a, it's a weird sort of like uh, they'll 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 give you an inch to take a yard form of identity. You can have your self identity as a a noble savage if you accept the parameters of the of the British state. That's fine. Mm -hmm. And then you get the best of both worlds. Remember that was actually a slogan in the independence referendum. It's the yeah. best of both worlds. Yeah. You can be a guy from Outlander, but, you know, not really. Uh, you, you do as you're told, you know. Have uh, you ever seen that film, Culloden? The film Culloden by Peter Watkins, the black and white one? Yeah, yeah. It's... I mean, it's magnificent. It's a really beautiful film. Like, I think you can probably find it online. Um, but it's a docudrama and it's almost like filmed on the battlefield and it's in black and white and it, it depicts Culloden and really it's the 
like it's not it, it certainly isn't in keeping with the the Scottish nationalist mainstream view of the the heroic Jacobites um, but actually is really about the destruction of the clan system and the I mean the slaughter of these um, these men and boys from the Highlands who didn't even speak the same language as Bonnie Prince Charlie um, sent to die for 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 his reign for his power it's a very beautiful film full recommends yeah and it's kind of short it's, it's from the 60s isn't it and it it's is, it, like 64 and it's sort of short using the techniques of kind of modern documentary mm-hmm. filmmaking which mm-hmm. were just coming into their own at that time so it's like he walks around and interviews soldiers on the battlefield which sounds like it should be naff it sounds like it should be one of those history programs you were shown at school yeah <laughs> you know, yeah Shot like a news people, story. But this is the thing, like at school people, people in Scottish schools should see that. Yeah. Like I think it's an incredible depiction of Scottish history. Um, yeah. Because it's not that like romantic heroic prince. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have that element to it. It's like, it's much more about like, <laughs> this is a war between elites. Yeah, and 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 they're just being um, deployed as pawns, and and it, the track they is sad to watch because they they worked out a lot of them. They know, you know, what's yeah. about to happen and stuff. Which is from what we know from the documentary evidence was what attitudes yeah. were like by the time of the battle. Um, they knew they were uh, fucked, and they knew it wasn't about them as well. A lot of people had worked that out. Um, so I know that that is a that is a brilliant film. Um, Speaking of films and did you read that article in the new york times about um oh well i mean it's happened with other shows as well lots and lots of tv shows being cancelled for being racist yeah are you following this i mean i I tend to skip by stories like that i mean this is the thing well i uh, i just think i i i i largely assume that those are Ne- almost never the, uh, have like a popular backing behind it, right? This is what slightly irritates me about this, right? In the United States right now, there is like a real fight on focusing on questions of state power, police violence. Why is the American security, carceral, police, army, military state so big? Do you know what I mean? Like, it to- like the, the size of the repressive state in America is gigantic. These are big and fundamental and interesting questions. And there's a live social movement on those matters. And I just feel like some NGOs have gone off and drawn up a list of children's programs where one of the characters is in a police uniform or something and said, right, guys, this is the real struggle. I don't know why. I don't know why it's in the SWV. (laughs) Everyone, everyone in an NGO is in the London left. Right, guys. (laughs) Um, But but seriously, like... uh, you know, it is that, it is that sort of like, I, I assume that, that it's mostly that kind of situation. And I just think, you know, way to, 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 to reduce a really sophisticated and dynamic movement to its lowest common denominator. It's grim. It it's grim. really grim. Like, Point. I mean, I, I just find like the, I just find that stuff really depressing. Like, I think that the, the ones that I was talking about in America are the TV show Cops, which is a, like a reality TV show where cops arrest perps, I guess they say in America. Um, but it's dumb, like it's really dumb, cheap TV and probably a good thing that, it, that it's off air. But one of the other ones is, uh, is Paw Patrol, which is mm. like, little animals in police uniforms. Yeah. But one of the other ones that's been, um, (laughs) not anymore. (laughs) One of the other ones that they're talking about is uh, being being a problem is The Wire, um, which I just, like I tweeted about it the other day. I mean, anyone who thinks that The Wire is a glorification or <laughs> a warm human portrait of the American police force, like needs needs a medical intervention. Like that is 
the the wire is one of the most important pieces of television for the fact that it exposes the system do you know what I mean? It exposes yeah. the entire system of like American justice, in inverted commas, um, and the game that people are trapped in, sucked into. And let's be honest, like none of those characters are, hmm, none of them are like heroes. It's anti-heroes, I suppose. But I think in a way that's that's maybe something people don't like about it. I rewatched it in lockdown. I remember um, you saying. Uh, I think that people don't like being presented with with a reality that uh, in all these institutions, whether it's the police or organised crime or the schools or the media or politics, uh, what you have is normal, flawed human beings uh, who are put into self-cannibalising and violent situations by institutional power. Uh, and ultimately, they're all destroying each other. I, you know, it, it doesn't fit particularly well, actually, with either side of a kind of culture war perspective. No, yeah. that's why I think, like, The Wire is actually something that the left should talk about more. Mm. Because that, like, that picture of, like, normal, flawed human beings going through this system is exactly what we need to be talking about right now. Do you know what I mean? We need to be talking about like systemic oppression, systemic racism, institutional power. But at the moment, I feel like a lot of the discourse around this, like, you know, cancelling TV shows or, uh, you know, people on social media doing the big like call out culture stuff focuses on those flawed individuals. Mm-hmm. who will have flawed views because that's how ideology works yeah and what yeah. we need to be talking ab- is about is like the the systems of like institutional racism and oppression rather than the the do you know I mean the people who are products of that if you know what I mean yeah and, and to go full circle, right, the, the, the problem we were discussing at the start of this podcast would be brilliantly examined in the framework of something like The Wire, right? Do I think that every uh, every every guy on an orange march is an immoral, evil person, and that's why they're on the march? No, I no. don't. Do, do no. I think that everyone policing the march is an evil, immoral person? No. Do I think that the Glasgow City Councillors who kept rooting marches past Catholic churches are mendacious evil people. No, I, I think that they're all subject in different ways to um, the brutality of the system, which again is not, is not to make a, a, a judgment that it's sort of like there's good and bad on both sides. That's not the same judgment. I'm not making a judgment that there is no moral universe uh, in, in, in politics. Um, but if you want to understand why so many institutions of power in Scottish society have accepted that political presence for so long, uh, you need, obviously, like a structural sociological analysis. Uh, a purely moral analysis will do nothing for you, it will explain nothing for you. And perhaps more importantly, it, will, it won't explain to you how you defeat that problem. So the thing that I really liked about Call It Out I, and its approach is that it takes on, uh, it, it directly says that the problem here is state power. And what state power decides is the parameter for acceptable behaviour and acceptable practice. And it decides a paradigm which ultimately abuses a minority community in the country. It didn't direct its complaints at the Orange Lodge. Because after all, what's the point, right? Yeah. You I mean, this is a, the one of the key things about Call it Out was never about banning marches. Yeah, yeah, it was just saying like just reroute them away from churches. I think that took that campaign took such a, an intelligent approach. I'm saying it in the past mm-hmm. tense. I dare say it's got a long road ahead of it, but it's such an intelligent and highly political approach to politics. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's so easy to reach down to the lowest common denominator and pick fights with groups of people who really lack power, you know, on, on, when it's just themselves by an, on an individual by individual basis, lack any substantial purchase uh, in society. I think for some people, there's always an attraction of that fight. I'm weak. 
let's bash another weak person. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, this is, but this, this, that whole thing, like, for me, is, like, that is part of the current politics of the broader left, which is founded upon competitive morality, which is that kind of, like, holier-than-thou type chat, do you know what I mean? Like, you're doing this wrong, I'm doing this right, this is about good and bad. Whereas my view, <laughs> that makes me sound like I'm doing that exact thing. I'll start that again. My morally so, better view, yeah. My morally better view, no, I'll start that again. So I think that this goes, speaks to the problem in the broader left where, I, I don't mean the organized left, I mean like left, liberal, like sentiment and institutional life yeah yeah. and where you have this competitive morality which is the holier than thou attitude the call out culture the like i'm right and good you're wrong and bad and you must be opposed um or even to be honest like kind of patronizing stuff that we saw around the eu referendum like only stupid people vote for brexit that's that kind of attitude like that that's really replaced one of the core parts of what is needed for the working class to build power and that's a moral orientation that's based on collective solidarity like that's that is actually what we need is like the collective solidarity which means like working across some of those divides working how you how you bring points of unity to those divides rather than that kind of competitive morality which is the force the the kind of harry potterization of politics the good Mm. forces versus bad forces yeah or indeed the uh outlanderization of politics good name for this uh, episode of the pod well outlanderization of politics (laughs) shit actually (laughs) i mean yeah what else was i gonna talk about Oh fuck! Talking about like colonialism and war. Mm. Did you see Twitter the other day about Barack Obama? No, I missed this. It was Trump's birthday, so loads of people on social media started sharing stuff about how wonderful, frankly wonderful, Barack Obama was as a president. And um, loads of pictures going round of like Trump looking all like divided and. Barack Obama, you know, standing in solidarity with the community like a hero. Uh, Disgusting. Disgusting. This is a man who increased US Special Forces presence to like 70% of the world's population. Like those operations increased like 130% compared to the Bush era. Record number of drone bombs. Like seven Muslim nations with drone bombs outside the great battlefields. But people are like playing this through the lens of the culture war, which is a complete misrepresentation of what has been happening over the last 20, 30 years in politics. You know what occurs to me about Barack Obama is in all major policy areas, he was the legitimate antecedent to Trump. So he was the one who began the protectionist measures to him in China, not Trump. It was mm. him. He, he first started to break down the kind of international free trade order, specifically to target China. It was Obama who um, organized the so-called Pacific pivot. So that's the pivot of American power away from the Middle East and towards the South China Sea. That's obviously a, a policy that Trump has largely pursued on both fronts, it has to be said. He was the, Obama's the major uh, figure in establishing drone warfare as a normalized part of American foreign policy. Trump's taken that and increased it massively. Obama on the domestic front, his major drive was to um, uh, harden the Mexico border. Record numbers of deportations, more deportations than like, all presidents. Yeah. Um, and he was also the one who introduced a lot of the policies which have subsequently been attributed to Trump in terms of, uh, well, putting Mexican people in cages on the border, right? 
these are these are mostly sort of Obama uh, Obama era innovations. So Trump very much took up the baton from Obama and ran with it. Um, and the only difference between them is that Donald Trump is uh, uh, an ugly sort of you know what I mean blaring uh, old white guy, and Obama was handsome and articulate and charismatic. I mean, he was hot, right? There's just no denying it. Uh, There's just no denying it. But he's also representative of, like, Barack Obama is more representative of the professional managerial class in the United States of America, who are the cosmopolitan coastal elites. Like, they are, like, East Coast, West Coast, um privileged, wealthy, like Barack Obama is more representative of them than he is the African-American population, surely. Oh yeah, certainly. That's not a controversial thing to say, is it? No. I mean, fuck, I've already, we've already burned quite a lot of bridges on this one, I think. So, in terms of the discussion about institutions, like, when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that the that we hear more, of, I feel like I see more on social media, I hear more generally about white privilege than racism. Mm. So racism is the thing. That is the, the social and structural thing that comes from laws, practices and institutions. And white privilege is... Like, what is it that, like, Ken and Malik had an, an article in The Guardian about this, and he says that white privilege turns social issues into a matter of personal and group psychology. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I, I think that he's right to, to point that out. Like, he, this article he wrote is called White Privilege is a Distraction, Leaving Racism and Power Untouched. I think it's a, I think it's a great, a great ar- article. He's talking about like the shift in public attitudes um, on racism is like something really positive, um, but he's very critical of that type of white privilege, like the idea that you view all white people um, as guilty and complicit. Like we touched on this in the last pod as well, um, and that that really it does distort the political issues because this is personal discrimination and personal violence is a personal problem, yes. But things like the mass incarceration of African-Americans or the likelihood of dying in police custody, like these things are, these are institutional and they have to be faced on that basis. And we need a word for that. And the word for that is racism. Am I quite explaining race? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you see, I actually, even though I agree with what Ken Mount is saying there, um, I've always assumed the reason for the popularity of the phrase privilege, you know, white privilege, male privilege, whatever, is um, that it gets people's backs up. So that's why it's used. As soon as you say, say to someone that they are privileged, we live in a society where people are very chippy, right? Very often because people have good reason to be chippy. We live in a very competitive uh, hierarchical society. So people always feel like they've gotten the raw end of the deal, right? It's a very widespread feeling in society. And it tends to exist almost as much on the right as it does on the left. So right-wing populist movements, for example, are typically mobilized by a feeling of, I've gotten the grievance. raw end of this, of a grievance. Yeah. Grievance is very yeah. important to modern psychology, right? So as soon as you say to anyone, you are privileged, that instantly triggers a defensive reaction where you say, but I've been through so much shit. I've been so unhappy in so many times in my life. I've, I've faced so yeah. much capacity, right? It's people who view each other as, again, this idea of competition, the competitive morality that is part yeah. of postmodernism. Right? Yeah. So this is exactly what I'm talking about, is that you have privilege because that's people saying you essentially have like a market advantage, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but it, the the point of that of the word privilege there as a discursive tool is it's supposed to cause an argument. It's not supposed to cause unity. It, it's yes. specifically designed to lead into a spiraling argument where both sides make increasing moral claims against each other. Right? 
So then the person, the, the, the white man, middle-class man says, I'm not privileged, everything I had, I worked for. Then the person who used the phrase privilege initially gets to say, you don't even understand all the, I'll list all the different privileges that you have that XYZ person didn't have, you haven't achieved, you got here through luck by how you were born, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it's an, you've, anyone who uses social media has probably seen that. Seen this, take place seen this a take place times. millions of times. And everyone who uses the word knows what the reaction is going yeah. to be as soon as they've used yeah. it. So yeah. it's, it's a game that, it's a discursive game that both sides enjoy playing against yeah. each other. I mean, you know. I, th- I think you're right. Like, the, in terms of a strategy, like talking about privilege is no way to build unity. And that's like, I mean, if people want to call us out on our white privilege for talking about this stuff on the pod, then so be it. Um, but, do you know what I mean? As someone who's like involved in the organized left, like, I, know, I don't know what it's like to be attacked because of the like of my race do you know what i mean of course i don't like i don't know what that must be like and the terror that that must induce or the Mm. rage that that must induce of course i can accept that but like i will spend the rest of my life trying to build solidarity the thing that's dead important about that kenny malik article is the fact that he talks about more than half of those killed in the u.s by police are white and proportionately killings of african-americans have fallen the number of white people killed by police has risen. Um, and he points out that the, high, the greatest predictor of being killed by the police in the United States is, is class, mm. right? And because of the legacy of slavery, because of the systematic oppression against African-Americans, then those communities are more likely to be in the bottom percentage of income brackets. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like I mean, African-Americans are disproportionately working class and poor. Like the, the working class and the poor are more likely to be imprisoned and they're more likely to be killed within the justice system. Yeah. So this makes sense. And this is why the discussion about white privilege or the discussion about removal of statues only rearranges the furniture in a system, it doesn't fundamentally challenge economic power. I mean, why else do we have like multi-billion dollar corporations who can happily say Black Lives Matter? They can, I mean, with, without any consequence because it makes no bit of difference to their power. No, None. of course not. And any, any corporation, no matter what it is, no matter how many black employees they have and are exploiting, um, whether it's a large number or a very small number, I mean, the, the huge companies that have come out and, su- and support the Black Lives Matter movement, their wealth could not possibly exist if the United States did not have a huge subaltern racialized working class. 100% true. 100% true. Their, their wealth and power couldn't exist without it. So they are literally the reason it's happening not a rusty old statue of Robert E. Lee. Not that the statue of Robert E. Lee is good, but Microsoft know that it's not going to hurt them that Robert E. Lee, that Michael E. Lee, (laughs) founder of Microsoft, uh, is knocked over. They know that. And they also know that, like, do you know what I mean? If if the questions were very different, if the demand that they were sponsoring was very different, if it was an obvious class demand, that would impact their bottom line, they wouldn't be saying Black Lives Matter. If they didn't feel that they could drive it, if they could co-opt it in, in various directions, they obviously would not. I mean, I've seen some- Like, some, dare I say, some of the demands put forward by Bernie Sanders around billionaires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, billionaires should not exist. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm only, you know, we only talk about these issues because of the danger that they legitimately pro- pose to a social movement. We should also bear in mind that like, you know, that social movement in America is a lot more than demands to topple statues. Like, there, no, there it, are, it is, it is. I think you're right to point out that the Black Lives Matter movement is something different mm-hmm. than the, the stuff around statues. I mean, it is, it's much bigger than that. It's a working class movement um it's on the streets as well organized 
um it's it, i mean there's no real like left in it <laughs> um it's very like grassroots community organized um and it's spectacular do you know what i mean like mm. some of the demands that are put forward like defund the police um wholeheartedly agree like i i i there for me there's no argument against defunding the police like i i, I haven't heard anyone say it people talk about like the police unions etc which which i think is a moral argument that people are making that like all uh unions are good things like all labor unions in the states are good things it's like like just just know like i mean fuck the police unions like they are part of the problem yeah this is this is the famous workers in uniform uh Uh, no 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 ignoring the fact that the police unions actually behave like a business lobby they lobby the government for more funding it's a racket like (laughs) i mean this is like you look at other public sector unions in the United States, like the teachers union, right? Like healthcare workers union. These are people who get shafted daily, daily. Like they are subject to the worst type of like anti-union legislation, union busters constantly, right? The police unions, <laughs> it, it ain't happening there. Yeah. It ain't happening I, there. Like, so the, this moral argument about like, oh, but the police union say, fuck it. Like, defund the police. Like, I don't see, the only thing that like gave me like a little like alarm bell was the idea of like a private police force. I mean, that is, that, that's the only thing. But as it stands, like, I saw someone on Twitter saying, defund the police sounds radical until you realize that education has been defunded for years. I know, I know. I mean, you do get that kind of response from conservatives of like, that's absolutely out there, it's absolutely crazy. Um, but I, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are, there are services which undoubtedly are more important to the fabric of society, which are routinely cut and are always the first to cut whenever there are budgets to cut. It's just really the army of the police. Uh, you know, that that is a a, a classic truism of Western society, you know. In Guys the, and guns. Guys and guns, yeah, yeah. Is that us? That is us. Would you like to do the outro? Yeah. Um, what do you usually say in the outro? Visit the website, subscribe. Yeah, uh, you can visit Don't the website. Us. Yeah, you can visit the website at consul.co.uk. Uh, we're on... Uh, Oh yeah, oh yeah, subscribe to our SoundCloud account uh, and don't don't cancel us, please. And uh, we'll speak to you all again in about a week's time or so.